Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, hints of a change at the top in North Korea a surge in arms sales to the Middle East and the rise of the far right in Sweden. We start, however, with a dangerous-looking rise in tensions between the two biggest powers in Asia, China and Japan. And with me is the FT's Richard McGregor, a former Beijing bureau chief. Richard, could you just start by outlining for us, I mean, what are they arguing about and what stage have we got to? Well, about two weeks ago, a Chinese uh, fishing captain was arrested and detained after allegedly colliding with a Japanese Coast Guard vessel off a thin parcel of island south of Okinawa called, in Chinese, the Diaotai, and in Japanese, the Senkaku. Now, these are, both sides claim them, and Taiwan claims them as well. They've generally managed to leave this issue of sovereignty off the agenda, but for some reason, the detention by Japan of this Chinese um, fishing boat captain and their handling of it since seems to have sent China into a rage. Is it a simulated rage, or are they genuinely enraged? Are they reacting to public opinion? Are they trying to intimidate the Japanese, or are they genuinely enraged? What's... Well, that's a very good question, because it, one of the most interesting things about this, at the initial stages of the dispute, the Chinese government went out of their way to make sure there were no big anti-Japanese protests in Beijing against uh, Japan, as there had been in 2005, which got out of hand. But since then, instead of talking the matter down, the Chinese have seemed to have talked it up. Now, the Chinese have always got to talk tough in public about uh, Japan. But when Zhao Bao, who's the sort of nice guy of the uh, Chinese leadership, really ratcheted things up two days ago in New York, where he said, you know, Japan just had to drop this immediately, and they were solely to blame, and hand the captain back. So it's not quite clear where the climb down is. Yeah, so how dangerous is, is it as a dispute? I mean, could they... they... Presumably they couldn't actually come to blows over this. I don't think so, but it's just a reminder of how how both countries are captured, if you like, in the public rhetoric uh, by the hardliners in the country and by history. They don't seem to be able to get through this. So every time even a small incident uh, happens, the, the rhetoric is ratcheted up. And I don't think they'll come to blows. There's too much at stake. Uh, but, you know, it just you look into the future and one day they will come to blows. That's really my, my final question is the big question. I mean, how are we to see this in a broader historical perspective? I mean, as you say, these disputes, these territorial disputes have been unresolved for years. But if the Chinese are getting more assertive, is this all part of China as number one in the Asian peninsula and, and the need for the Japan to perhaps accommodate itself. Well, absolutely. That's the big game. China is number one. You'd expect them to want to be that. Um, But I think in the short term, it means, thank God for America. The Korean Civil War is not over. The Chinese Civil War is not over. China and Japan are at each other's throats all the time. The only thing that's kept them apart for all these years is the US military presence. Now, absent that, I think China would increasingly get its way, which is why it's been so interesting in North Asia and particularly recently in South Asia, why all these Asian countries have reinstated their call for America to stay and take a higher profile role in the Asia-Pacific. Richard McGregor, thank you very much indeed. In different ways, both Japan and China have to worry about another security threat in North Asia, and that's the future of the nuclear-armed dictatorship known as North Korea. 
Its ruling party has just announced a grand congress in which the country's leader, Kim Jong-il, is expected to announce his successor. The FT's Helen Worrell spoke to Christian Oliver, who's the FT's career correspondent, to find out who's expected to take Mr Kim's place and why the Congress is significant. This is to select the leadership of the nation. We haven't had anything vaguely like this, really, for 30 years. And it was the equivalent meeting in 1980 that was used by the Lem leader, Kim Il-sung, to appoint his son, Kim Jong-il, into the positions within the party and within the military that effectively gave him the positions of power that made people see him as the successor. There was no concrete announcement that he is the successor. He will succeed Kim Il-sung. He doesn't work like that, but he gets the jobs that identify him as that. So what we're expecting here is that the succession of Kim Jong-il's own son is going to um, take place in a similar way by getting jobs in the party and the military, two parts of the state that are very likely to be at odds with each other within North Korea's divide and rule system. And how will the succession actually work once Kim Jong-il's third son has been given these two jobs, one in the military, one in the party? When do we think Kim Jong-il might actually step down and properly give him the keys to the kingdom? very hard to say how this will, will work. I mean, really, the extraordinary thing about the succession is that it's been left so late that the sort of positions of power that enabled us to see Kim Jong-il as the successor gradually developed over a period of you know, 20, maybe more years. The thing is here, this process is now happening very late. And Kim Jong-il himself is not well. We, he's very likely to have had a stroke, he may have had heart problems, the chances of sudden death are high. So this succession process, bringing in an elite to support this, the Dauphin, if you like, is happening very late. And I mean, that, of course, has got to set the argument being, can this man really develop to form a leadership, to be a leader in the mold of Kim Il-sung or um, Kim Jong-il? He will have to form an elite of, we think, about 200, 250 people across all walks of life who will be the, almost the steering committee for the, the heir apparent. The big debate is, can the third Kim actually have the same aura, the same power to him as his, as his grandfather and his father? Obviously, all the details of Kim Jong-il's family are shrouded in secrecy, but do we know anything about the third son, Kim Jong-un? The stories surrounding him are very turbid and are really our best source, amazingly enough, is a Japanese sushi chef who works as a personal chef to Kim Jong-il. And he has some anecdotes about the boy, but he's from such a young age as to be almost irrelevant. Um, he's thought to have spent a short period, although maybe less than his brother's, being educated in Switzerland. But in terms of character, I mean, some people are already speculating and writing in sort of very elevated circles that he shows his father's, you know, sort of capacity for paranoia and dictatorial tendencies. I don't think there's any evidence of his character traits at all. There are a couple of small anecdotes about how he 
was quite a well-organized team leader in basketball playing, how the, the extent to which nothing is known about him is illustrated probably best by the fact that we didn't even know his name at the beginning of last year. So I, I don't think we can make any judgments about him at all. The jury, the jury must remain out on that. Christian Oliver in Seoul. In Sweden, the centre-right government of Prime Minister Fredrik Reinfeldt has just failed to win an overall majority in the recent elections, leaving it with an unattractive choice. It could rely on the Sweden Democrats, a party that's just won a block of seats in Parliament for the first time, but that has a reputation as being very much on the far right. Or it could turn to hostile opposition parties, such as the Greens, for help. Andrew Ward is the FT's bureau chief in Stockholm, and he's been talking to our Fiona Simon about Mr Reinfeldt's options said all along that he would not work with the Sweden Democrats and there's been no change in that position since the election. Um, however, that's based on the assumption that he can find support from opposition parties to pass legislation, and so far there's, there's no sign that, that they're willing to help him out. The Green Party uh, is seen as the most likely partner, and it says it doesn't feel it has a mandate from its supporters to prop up Mr Reinfeldt's government. So, you know, he could be left with no alternative but to rely on, on passive support from the Sweden Democrats, even if he keeps his promise not to work with them directly. The party grew out of an ultra-nationalist ultra group called Keep Sweden Swedish. Will its newfound power lead to a change in the country's traditionally generous immigration policy, do you think? I think it's going to definitely force mainstream politicians to address the issue more openly. Uh, before the election, the main parties and the national media tended to ignore the Sweden Democrats in the hope they would go away. Um, to some extent, they'll continue to do that by trying to marginalise the party in Parliament. But clearly, they can't afford to ignore the message that, that voters are sending here. Otherwise, there's a risk that the far right will just keep getting stronger. So I think there'll be more open recognition that integration of immigrants has not been wholly successful in Sweden, where you have big ethnic ghettos that have sprung up in the suburbs of, of Stockholm and Malmo and other cities. Um, but I think the government's going to be very careful not to do anything that looks like a clampdown on immigration, because then it would look like they were caving into the Sweden Democrats. So I expect they're going to focus more on how to improve integration of immigrants by getting more of them off welfare and into work. What about the Sweden Democrats themselves? Other countries, um, such as Norway and Denmark, have successfully assimilated far-right parties once viewed as extreme. Do you think Sweden will go the same way? Well, that seems to be the aim of the Sweden Democrats. The, the big question is whether they will remain a fringe protest party of the far-right um, and perhaps fizzle away once the economy has, has fully recovered from recession, um, or whether they can grow into a more enduring force in Parliament um, along the lines of the Danish People's Party, which helped prop up a, a minority government in Denmark, uh, or the Norwegian Progress Party, which is the, the biggest opposition group in Norway. Um, now, both of these parties have more mainstream populist identities, whereas the Sweden Democrats are more akin to groups such as the, the British National Party or the French National Front, which are maybe more openly um, xenophobic. So, it just depends on whether they have the will and the internal discipline to reinvent themselves as a more respectable populist party that can appeal to a, a broader voter base. Obviously, the election result has been shocking to some, uh, but investors appear to think there won't be much change in Sweden, at least in the short term. What's your view of the longer-term outcome of the poll result, particularly in the light of the worst-ever showing of the centre-left Social Democrats? 
That's right. I mean, the last time I looked, the Swedish crown had actually strengthened since the election, and that is really confounding the predictions that um, it could have weakened in the event of a, a hung parliament and the, and the sort of chaos that that implies. So I think that that tells us that investors are pretty relaxed about the prospect of a minority government because um, historically majority rule has been pretty rare in Sweden, and the system is actually set up to empower minority governments um, to get their budgets through parliament. So um, Frederick Reinfeldt doesn't even need support from other parties to get a lot of things done. But I think that once the shock of the far-right breakthrough subsides, the, the biggest historical significance of the election will turn out to have been, as you, as you mentioned, the, the, the re-election of a centre-right government and the, the crushing defeat suffered by the Social Democrats. Um, this is a party, remember, that has ruled Sweden for all but 13 of the last 78 years. It's the closest thing that Europe has to a permanent party of government, yet it uh, slumped on Sunday to its worst defeat in almost a century. Um, and this fits a broader uh, trend that we've seen in Europe since the financial crisis, where left-leaning parties have really struggled to exploit um, economic turmoil that might have been expected to, to benefit them. Um, and at the same time, you've seen advances by far-right parties um, in several countries, such as the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria, and elsewhere. So it's a broader trend, but it's particularly vivid in Sweden, because, vivid, uh, because Sweden is traditionally seen as the, the home, the mecca of, of, of European social democracy. So, so, so to see the re-election of a centre-right government and a breakthrough fight by the far-right um, has been um, a great shock to people here. Andrew Ward in Stockholm. Now to our final topic for today, the Middle East, and the announcement this week highlighted in the FT of a very large package of arms sales, particularly from the US to Saudi Arabia. With me in the studio is David Blair of the Financial Times, a specialist in the region. David, could you first just give us a recap of the scale and scope of the deal? What's being sold? The scale is quite extraordinary. Four countries in the Gulf are spending a total of $122.8 billion dollars on weapons from the US. The biggest spender is Saudi Arabia, which is spending $67 billion, principally on 84 new F-15 jets. Then uh, Kuwait is also going to re-equip its air force at a cost of about $8 billion. Uh, the United Arab Emirates is going to spend about $35 billion, principally on very advanced missile defence systems. And then Oman is going to buy a new fleet of F-16 fighters for about 7 or $8 billion. So the, the total scale of this expenditure is really unprecedented. In peacetime history in the Middle East, there's never been anything quite like this. And what's driving it all? A lot of it seems to be air defence and so on. Does that suggest they're worried about Iran? The equipment they're buying shows pretty clearly the sort of scenario that they're most worried about, um, particularly the missile defence systems. Uh, what they're looking uh, to ensure themselves against is a future where Iran marries its established capability in long-range ballistic missiles with non-conventional warheads of some kind, perhaps in time with nuclear warheads. That's clearly the scenario that most worries them. We're familiar with the idea that these, this is an area that is awash in oil money, but even for countries such as this, these are huge sums. I mean, is it remotely controversial that Saudi Arabia should be spending you know, close to $70 billion on, on weapons? Mm. It's very hard to tell the state of public opinion in these countries, as we know. Um, but the anecdotal evidence suggests that, yes, a lot of people are questioning whether it's worth spending this amount of money on this kind of equipment, uh, particularly when there are very severe social problems. 
Um, and also when the jobs that are being created by these deals are overwhelmingly in the US, not exclusively because there are offset agreements, which means that some of the manufacturing and maintenance will take place locally. But nonetheless, the benefits overwhelmingly are going to US corporations. And that doesn't play very well with Middle Eastern opinion. Fantastic bonanza for the United States defence industry, however. Hugely, um, particularly for a company like Boeing, which is getting to supply the Saudis with the F-15s. Boeing's been under huge competitive pressure when it comes to military aircraft recently, and this will be a significant leg up. Does it create some sort of dilemma in foreign policy terms for the United States? Because, of course, uh, they, they want people to be on their guard against Iran, but I suppose the big picture is they're trying to calm things down in the Middle East. Now, it's wonderful when they're trying to increase exports to have a huge boost to the domestic defence industry, but on the other hand, are they in danger of stoking the the kind of flames of conflict there? Yes, I mean, it's, it's the eternal dilemma throughout history. On the one hand, if you fail to build up your weapons, you are a provocative target through your very weakness. But on the other hand, if you do, then you risk inflaming tensions. Um, it's too early to say which of those two scenarios will, will play out in the Middle East. Um, but I think part of the objective here is to drive home to the Iranians the cost of their present course of action. Because if you look at it, I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. The Iranians through their foreign policy have managed to absolutely unite the Arab world with the Americans. Uh, They've managed to create this huge opportunity for the US defense industry. Um, And if there were tensions between the Americans and and their allies in the Gulf, then those tensions are as nothing compared to the Gulf states' fears of Iran. So Tehran, instead of dividing its enemies, has actually managed to unite them all together. David Blair, thank you very much indeed. That's it for this week. All that's left for me is to thank Richard and David in the studio, Andrew Ward in Stockholm and Christian Oliver in Seoul. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.